James, chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Si alguno se cree religioso entre vosotros y no refrena su lengua, sino que engana su corazón, la religión de tal es vana, la religión pora y sin macula, talante de Dios es padre, el Padre es esta. Visitar a los huérfanos, a, lo, a las viudas en sus tribulaciones, y guardarse sin mancha del mundo. Amen. We're going to continue to get used to that because uh, our community here is uh, mainly Latino and Asian, so we're practicing. Um, who knows? Maybe we'll add Italian as a third one one of these times. <laughs> I, I could practice my Italian that way. All right, let's, um, let's pray one more time that God would bless this message, that um, he'd open our hearts to uh, the words of the scriptures in James 1, 26 to 27. It's a powerful uh, few verses. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We've heard voices all week, maybe even this morning, from all different areas. Um, but we long, as your children redeemed by the blood of your Son, we long to hear our Father's voice, your reassuring voice, even your convicting, correcting voice, Because we know, Father, that you discipline those you love and that you've accepted as a child. So be with us now, Lord, and may we be among those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and those who don't deceive themselves by just hearing your word and not doing it. But, Lord, may we, by your grace and in the power of your spirit, be among those who hear your word and then do it by faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but if you ever watch um, American Idol or one of those type of shows, huh? Do you ever see, like, the, the very beginning auditions? Like, to me, they got to be set up. Now, why do I say that? Because they are so awful. They're an absolute train wreck, right? And, and you could, like, you know, the, the judges are kind of like after, like, two, oh, oh, oh. And then people like Simon, you know, they're not really gentle. But you think, now i got to be honest, this is what I honestly think to myself. Is there not one person in their life that loves them? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like someone that told them early on, hey, you are made special by God. You have awesome talents, but singing is not one of them. <laughs> right? You would think. Well, praise God. Well, well, let me say this. I don't know about you, but sometimes I may not want friends who are honest with me like this. But I need friends that are honest with me like this. You know, it's like when you got the schmutz and you're eating and you're laughing and there's a big large t- and not one person says a word and it's like hanging from your beard, you know. And then you go to the bathroom and you look up to wash your hands and you go, whoa, what is that thing? Is it alive, right? But then I go back a little bit like, anybody going to say anything, you know? But a real friend says, hey, you're, 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 oh, thanks so much, right? James is a real friend. 
James is all about reality in religion. Three times in his first chapter of his letter, he says, don't be deceived, don't be fooled, and then again in our passage, don't kid yourself. He's speaking to people, by the way, who profess to have received the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and they would consider themselves religious people. So, uh, that word is not used much in the Bible, by the way. I think it's only used five times in the New Testament, maybe three passages. And this one uh, in James uses it twice. And the word for religion here has to do with the actual liturgy of the church, the worship of going through the ceremonies. And so it's important to see. Sometimes you will talk to people, right? And you'll say, they'll, they'll say to you when you're witnessing, you're sharing Christ with them, well, I'm a Catholic, but I'm not practicing. And what do they mean by that? They mean I don't go to Mass, I don't participate in the rituals. That's what they mean by not practicing. Well, what James wants to talk about this morning, and this is for those of us especially who claim to be Bible believers and Protestant, he wants to make sure we're not non-practicing Protestants. Because even if you ask a Protestant, uh, what's a practicing Protestant? Usually they will give you a list of good things that the Bible says we should certainly do and they're important to do. You know, they'll say, did I have my devotions in this morning? This morning? Did I read the Bible? Am I praying? Am I going to church? Am I uh, singing the praise songs or partaking of the sacraments, right? Even Protestants will say that. But there's one problem with that list if you just stop there. Those are all things, notice, that are actually means of grace to help us grow in Christ. That's our intake. All those things are intake, right? Prayer, reading, worship, it's all receiving God's grace. But it's interesting, when James begins to talk about a list of what true religion is, pure and undefiled, that God our Father accepts, it's all about mainly output, not intake. And this is what I mean. My buddy Paul Green in uh, Hope for um, the Inner City now, it's called Hope for the Inner City in Chattanooga. When he has teams come each year, he puts the fear of God in the teens. He says, this is your week. You are now the servants. Don't look at your leaders. When something needs to be done, you are a minister of Christ. You need to trust him and step out in faith and do the work of the ministry. And then he tells them this. He says, all your life you've been soaking it up like a sponge, right? How many sermons, how many Bible studies, how many small group studies, how many junior camps? And he goes, now it's time to what? Ring it out. Yeah, that's Mr. Miyagi. Time, your best karate still inside. Time let out. And that's what James is saying. James is saying it's time to show that you believe by what? Putting your faith into practice. And I don't know about you, but if I'm going to practice any religion, I want to make sure of one thing, that it's the kind of religion that God, the Father and Creator of all things, accept, all things accepts. Amen? Do you want to waste around with a religion that God's like, that stinks. It's worthless. I don't know about you, but I don't want to do hardly anything in life that's worthless, right? And the neat thing about this text is James is going to give us practical examples. He just told us in his book, he was just telling us not to be hearers of the word only, but doers also. And he even tells us that those who just hear it and don't do it, they, just what I was telling about before, they deceive themselves. 
But he says, if you hear the word and you do what it says, then he says you will be blessed in all you do. You will be a blessed man or woman of God if you actually go far further and not only hear it, but do it. And so when James boils, he's going to now give us what's, what's an example? What are some examples of putting the word into practice? He gives us three examples, and he mentions these three things as uh, summarizing, in a sense, genuine, God-acceptable worship. And so this is what we're going to see this morning, only three things. And these are the three things we need to do if we want to make sure we're not deceiving ourselves, but indeed practicing Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless. Here are the three simple things. we got to watch our mouths. Oh, I didn't think that would be on the list, did you, of true religion. Watch your mouth. The second one is watch out for orphans and widows. That doesn't always make the list in many evangelical churches, right? Certainly not number two. And the last one is we got to watch our lives that we don't fall into worldliness and be polluted with the rest of the world. We're going to talk about those three things. Watch our mouths, watch watch out for orphans and widows, watch our lives. Let's take a look at the first one. Watch our mouths. Verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious, yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Now, a woman once said to John Wesley, my talent is to speak my mind. And John Wesley said, I'm sure, sister, that God wouldn't mind if you bury that talent. (laughs) Now, James would agree. He actually starts his description of pure religion with a taming of the tongue, this little muscle in our mouths. He comes right out and says, if we don't keep a tight rein on our tongues then our religion is not only uh, you know, not perfect, but it's, it's far from pure and faultless. He goes further than that. He says it's worthless. Now, why would James say something so drastic? Well, I'll tell you this. It's not really that difficult to figure out when you think about it for a minute. After all, what's at the very heart? How does, God, how does Jesus summarize all of God's commands to us? He gives us two. And what are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what's the second one? Liken unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two biggies. And it really boiled down to one. Love, right? Well, think about it this way. Now, why, why James would say your religion is worthless if you don't tame your tongue. When we gossip, when we backbite, when we tear down and even curse our neighbor, especially if it's a fellow brother or sister in Christ, we're not acting in love, are we? We're acting in hate. We're not practicing pure and faultless religion, but rather worthless religion. We're not building up. We're, we're tearing down. It's a huge theme in James's letter, and I'm just going to tell you where you can look for it. You don't have to look now, but just so you know. He already mentioned the tongue in in chapter 1, verse 19. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, it's this long passage about taming the tongue. Then chapter 4, verses 11 to 17, he's back on the tongue. And then chapter 5, verse 9, he's talking about the tongue again. So I think he thinks this is very important. Amen? Because here's the issue. In the church of Jesus Christ, 
we look at like gross sins and we will condemn one another and judge one another. And we should in love and watching out that we don't fall too because we got feet of clay. We should correct and love each other and, and hold each other to the gospel standards. But one area that's interesting, you could be a very religious, you know, we could call it the church lady, is what? Gossip. When was the last time you heard someone was brought to the leadership of the church because they were gossiping? No, that gets a pass, doesn't it? We could sit there and roast each other all we want, tear each other up and down, and that's okay. That's like a holy sin, as it were. James says that ought not to be, my brothers. Walter B. Knight writes this, listen. Unless we yield our tongues as instruments of righteousness unto God, Satan will use them to his advantage and to our spiritual impoverishment. And then this is the key. I like what he says here. Some people pride themselves that they have the gift of gab. But one thing is certain. What little spirituality such people possess may soon dribble away via the mouth. Isn't that a powerful thought? Yeah, we thought we were so holy, we're doing so good. Maybe we judge ourselves even better than other people who don't do certain things. And yet, because of this, it all dribbles away. We serve up roast pastor at the family dinner. And then we wonder why our kids don't respect leadership in the church. We rip on each other in the body of Christ. And then we wonder why our kids grow up unbelieving. Oh, I don't want to go to that place. I heard my mom and dad talk about those people. No, we act all sweet and buddy-buddy with friends and colleagues and even brothers and sisters in Christ only to go in the next room with someone else and tear them to smithereens. Then, here's what James is saying, then we're crazy enough to think that God accepts our religion, our religiosity? Now, James, aren't you being a little extreme? I mean, if we don't control our tongues, our religion is worthless? That's a bit radical, isn't it? Is he using hyperbole like sometimes us preachers are, are accused of? Oh, he's being, you know, he's over-exaggerating. Well, let me ask you this. Steal a line from my wife. Let me ask you this, she says. Ask the businessman who can't get any clients and his business is going under because someone carelessly repeated some hearsay around town and even though it's not true, his reputation is ruined and he can't now provide for his family. Ask the new kid in school who's treated like an outcast and bullied because some mean young person found out something about their past and thought it was a, that they needed to go and tell the whole school about it. And so the kid, when he wakes up, begs his parents, please don't make me go to that place. Or ask the spouse or the child who would, who would do anything to hear one kind, uplifting word from their parent or from their spouse instead of just criticism and tearing down. Proverbs twelve eighteen. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I've preached a number of sermons in my life on tongue control and watching your mouth, but I've got to be honest. I can't tell you how many times, even after a sermon like this, Maybe that day or at least that week, I, I realized I just said something I would give anything to take back. Right? I realized I just hurt somebody unnecessarily, and it breaks my heart. So what's the answer? 
Let me say this. It's important to see. What James wants us to see, especially as those who consider ourselves religious, he wants us to recognize something that we say a lot, at least our circles. We talk about the gospel is not just for the unsaved world. The gospel is for who? The church. That means we need the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the forgiveness and the forbearance of the Lord Jesus Christ just as bad as the world out there is. It's humbling when you go as a child of God, okay, God, I'll do what you say. It's humbling when you fall right on your face. Amen? Dick Lucas, um, preacher that's very much influenced me. Um, now he's retired, but he, he just always has some, some great... Uh, Great words on scripture, great comments. He gives an illustration of how he was speaking to college students. And he said, all right, let's make a pact together. He goes, let's promise to uh, tame our tongues and only say of building things for one week. And then I want you all to write back and tell me how you did. You know, write me, here's my address. He said, got nothing back. Like two months later or whatever it was, he gets a card in the mail from one student. And this is all it said. I could not keep the promise. And um, he just basically said in his British way, bless his heart. Right? Because he's being real. And he recognizes his poverty of spirit. Right? And his need on a daily basis for the grace of God in his own life. That humbles you. When you go to to minister to, to fellow sinners that you meet, you realize you're, you're, it's, it, you don't just think uh, you're not better. You realize you're not any better. You realize that before Jesus, you are on equal footing in desperate need of his mercy and of his grace. It also shows us even that as we get back up when we fall and come to him for mercy and grace, that we need to weigh our words more carefully. We need to pray this prayer more regularly if we want the religion that we practice to be acceptable in our Heavenly Father's sight. Psalm 141, verse 3. This is what the psalmist prayed and what we should pray. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That should be our prayer. So true, pure, and undefiled religion that God our Father accepts, first of all, has to do with watching our tongues. And the second ingredient we need is to watch out for orphans and widows. Look at verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. This is where the rubber meets the road. According to Psalm 68, 5-6, this is who God is. He's a father. We just sang about it. I taught you the song for you. It's a new song. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Listen, God has always called his people to imitate himself. Always. And always in the Old Testament, he is the defender of the widow. He is a a protector of the orphan. He has a special heart for those who can't help themselves. The stranger. Sound familiar? 
And so God in the Old Testament again and again has provisions for his people Israel to care for the weak in society and not neglect them, overlook them, especially not um, abuse them or oppress them. But here's the thing. We serve the same God. He has not changed in the New Testament. You know, some people say, well, that was the God of the Old Testament. Guess what? Same God. As a matter of fact, we have right here in the New Testament, as true religion is being summed up, one of the biggies is what? Caring for widows and orphans. That's New Testament, not old. What James is saying is we're called to put our faith into practice, right? We're not called to just talk about it, but we're called to be about it. And very often, uh, people will criticize, as soon as you start talking about caring for those in society who are weak, who don't have a voice and speaking up for them, they right away say, oh, that's a social gospel. Or they'll say, what are you, like a left-wing liberal? And I say, no, I'm just a Christian. And I'm not saying I do it perfectly. I'm not Mother Teresa, unfortunately. But I know this is what God calls me to. And when I fall, i got to get back up, have the Lord Jesus brush me off, and go right back at it. And maybe this time I'll get a little further before I fall again by his grace. See, here's the thing that we as, as those who are evangelical Christians who believe this book is God's word to us. We need to remind folks and ourselves we have an awesome tradition of mercy ministry to the world. When you think of great, uh, the Great Awakening here in this country, you think of greater uh, revivals, you think of that the gospel was preached and people were, their souls were saved, and that's absolutely true, and we praise God for that great uh, tradition we have. But what we don't often emphasize and we don't realize, not only did evangelicals preach the gospel, but we set up orphanages. We set up hospitals. We cared for the weak. That's our heritage, and no one, brothers and sisters, can take that away from us. The church of Jesus Christ, we're called to do that. And we have no right putting that off on someone else or some other group or some other organization. And I think it's important to see here, it's funny where we choose to be legalistic, by the way. James is not merely saying only technical widows and only those orphans. Widows and orphans, that represents for James in the whole Bible those who can't help themselves. Those who are weak, those who who need mercy and help. Those are the most vulnerable in society. You'll know that revival has really hit your church and your area when young people are so on fire for Christ that they spend more time visiting nursing homes and brightening up an old person's life than they do on Xbox. Of course, Xbox isn't wrong. You know, some, there's something uh, different about a young person that's spending more time with old people. Amen? But we don't realize. We always want to do these big things for Jesus. But in a quiet moment when no one has visited someone, you know how sad those places are? And especially, it's so sad when someone says, yeah, my son was here. And the nurse looks at me and goes, her son hasn't been here like a month. Your heart just sinks. What a difference it makes to just go and and hear their stories and share God's love with them in in any way you can. 
You'll know a revival's hit when God's people, young and old, take the time to play and play with and share the gospel with at-risk children. For those who are abused and neglected and lonely. God's people of all people should be sensitive to the needs of the community around them. Especially those who don't have a voice. Like the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Listen, I'm going to preach here. I have absolutely no problem helping people apply for government aid who are hurting and need some help. I think there are many programs that are good and they're designed to help people who are trying hard to make ends meet, but they just can't bring home enough to take care of their families. Matter of fact, uh, my wife more than me because I'm just not good at it. I, I kind of delegate. I delegate. But she's taken folks to of the welfare office, who thought that they would only qualify for none or like a real little bit amount. And then when she was done, they're like hundreds of dollars they qualified. We praise God for that. But having said that, we dare not abdicate our calling and our duty to the government as the church of Jesus Christ. Um, As Dave likes to say, you want the government to handle it? Have you ever been to the DMV? Apparently, some of you haven't been to the DMV. No, it's God and God's people. We are the ones, brothers and sisters. We are the ones that are the body of Christ in the world. Listen, Isaiah 58, 9 to 10 puts it this way. And it's talking to God's people. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. That's the church. You know the church is weak in our country when we don't see this reflected. When we're bragging about being religious. But we neglect the people who need Jesus the most. And the needy aren't always those who are lacking material possessions. Because guess what? Rich folk need Jesus, I would say, just as bad, but I'm going to say more. Because sometimes they think they're self-sufficient, they did it themselves, and they're all that. Snap. There's a story that Calvin Miller tells in his book, A Taste of Joy, and he writes about a wealthy woman who was found dead in her home. She lived all alone. And the coroner found no organic reason for her death. And this is what Miller commented. I want to read this so I get it right. He says, I think the cause was neglect. She was weary of setting a single plate at the table and fixing her coffee one cup at a time. The old woman had written on her calendar only one phrase. No one came today. You always think that there's so much out of our power and out of our control. If we could only do more, what would it take? It doesn't matter what your gift set is, what your talent set is. Every one of us in this room could cheer up a lonely widow. Could put a smile on a young child who's had it rough. Martin Luther once said, the world does not need a definition of religion 
as much as it needs a demonstration. We want religion that is pure and faultless, that God our Father accepts, then we need to watch our tongues, look after widows and orphans in their distress. And the last one, and it's a shorter point, so you don't have to get nervous, is we need to watch our lives. Look again with me at verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress, and then this part, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What James is saying is through all this busyness and service, which he's just telling us we should be doing, he says, don't neglect your own walk with Jesus, the care of your own soul. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. What's the world here? The world, that word can mean a number of different things in the Bible, depending on the context. But the world here, in this context that James is referring to, is society that is at enmity with God and does not follow God's uh, kingdom values. It's the world that is against God, enemies with God, and that Paul says, that world that tries to conform us to it so that we'll go on the broad road that leads to destruction with them. And just float along, go along with the crowd. D.L. Moody once said this, very powerful. He said, the place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets into it. In other words, as Christians, we are to be in the world, but not of it. How can we help others find and walk on the right path when we ourselves aren't walking on it? That's a little rough, ain't it? Those we serve will be watching us and even imitating us. I can't tell you when I goof around with the teams and then all of a sudden I see the people imitate me. I'm like, oh man, got to watch that a little bit. But more importantly, and this is way more important, God the Father's watching us. We have to remember, as someone once put it, wrong doesn't become right and evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority. That's a society where everybody jumps on the wagon, whatever wagon is. I'm so sick of all the wagons. I got off, man. Dave and I talk, we're like, I'm sick of this conference, that conference. I'm done. This is my conference. I'm holding up a Bible for those listening. (laughs) But anyway, um, that's the problem. You know, God doesn't rule by majority rule. How many times in the Bible it's just a few elect left, right, that stand for the truth in the midst of a society that's literally decaying and killing itself. But we don't want our society to go to hell in a handbasket. So we're called to be salt. But how can we be salt if we lose our saltiness, to use Jesus' phrase? One time a professed believer actually said this. The gospel has nothing to do with sexuality, but everything to do with helping the poor. Eh, negatory. Because this is what, they're, what she's trying to do. She's trying to make a distinction or trying to separate two things. She's trying to separate keeping yourself pure, which the Bible certainly tells us to do, and serving the poor. In other words, if I just serve the poor, my life can be a mess, my piety. 
And so some people, they argue between pietism, in other words, keeping yourself pure and trying to stay uh, close to the Lord through prayer and, and fellowship and um, all the other things God tells us to do, or going out and actually being active. And when I hear people argue about this, sometimes it's so absurd to me. It's like hearing two people say, two people arguing this, I think we should have a right leg, I think we should have a left leg. And they go back and forth, and I'm like, I want to just say, yo, I'd like two legs if that be possible. Amen? And here we see, according to James, we need to be involved in both. Soul care, making sure that we're walking with Jesus. We're repenting when God, not if God points out, but when God points out where we're messing up, because we all do. We need to be repenting of it. We need to be having short accounts with God, asking his forgiveness, getting back up and going back on the road. And we need to be about our Father's business. Because here's the two opposite extremes. The one extreme is when the church is in a holy huddle and the whole rest of the world is going to hell. That's called Pharisaism. They want to stay so pure they don't even hang out with sinners. Right? The other extreme is you're going out doing all these things and that alone is your religion. You think that God, that you're earning your way to heaven. Or that it doesn't really matter that you're not holy and you're not uh, doing what God says uh, and all the other things in life, but, but you're helping people. I'll give an example of that, and this is where James is coming from. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? And you remember people come to him, Lord, Lord, uh, we've done miracles in your name. And what does he say? He says, depart from me, I never knew you, but he says this, you evildoers. This is the call of God. We claim his name, we're, we're, we're covered in his blood, then we have to live pure and holy lives by his grace. It's, not, it's a non-negotiable. James will get into that later. If you really have faith, you're going to show it. question here my brothers and sisters as I come to a close do you have good religion that our father and our God and father accepts does your life reflect what we've just seen here in James chapter 1 I don't know about you and I've preached this text a few times but by the time I'm done with this text I'm bleeding all over. I'm holy, but it ain't with an H. <laughs> right? And that's the beauty of James' book. We can't go through the, all of his book right now, but it is a, a, a five-chapter book. He doesn't just stop here. There's more. And the beauty of it is this. Later on, he's going to tell us. I think it's the next text. I think um, Pete's going to deal with it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God doesn't tell us these things to browbeat us or make us feel bad. He tells us these things, just like I'm going to start where I end where I started. Like if you're loving, you're going to tell that person, singing shouldn't be your gig. Well, if we're, if, since God is loving, he corrects us when we're on the wrong path so that by faith we'll keep on keeping on doing what he says by the faith that he's granted us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are strong words we've heard this morning. These are words of life. They're words of reality in religion. 
every single one of us, we need to hear it this morning. Thank you for this gift and thank you for loving us enough that you won't let us walk around in denial, deceiving ourselves that we're way further along than we really are. Father, but our heartfelt prayer, especially those of us here who know you, we know that our heartfelt felt prayer is to be more like you. We want to be used by you for good, to further your kingdom's purposes, to make a difference in this world before you take us, Lord, to glory. We want to see lives change. We want to see people healed. We want to see relationships restored. We want to see souls saved. So please, God, demonstrate true religion and a relationship with you through us. Even this week, Lord, as we prepare to pour ourselves out, to spend and be spent for your sake and your gospel's sake, Lord. And God, please, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you yet through Christ, use these words that we just heard to show them their need for you, Jesus, as a Savior, that they can't save themselves. May they fall on their knees, turn from their sins, and receive you as Savior and Lord, and join the army of God to be an instrument and agent of change right here where you put us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.